Right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smithy. Here we go now with the city of Vancouver voting yesterday to spend more than $600,000 to sue big oil companies for the damages caused by climate change, wildfire, floods, heat domes, damaged bridges and highways, hundreds of heat-related deaths. The city says it's all the big oil companies' fault. They say it's time to sue them. In court, we've got an awesome panel standing by on this. Now, first, though, have a listen to this from yesterday's show. We debated this yesterday. City Council candidate Bill Thielman, he is opposed to this big oil lawsuit. Here's what he had to say about it. Well, I think it's a terrible idea, Mike. It's not the city's jurisdiction, and it leaves the city open for liabilities on legal costs. On What if you lose? I mean, Big Oil will have the best and brightest lawyers in the world fighting you. And what if you lose and you have costs against you on top of all the other costs? We should be spending on policing or road repair or cleaning the city or all the other things that are city services that are falling behind right now, despite some big tax increases. Okay. Meanwhile, Green Party City Councilor Adrian Carr, she supports this lawsuit. It was her motion at council. Here's what she said yesterday. The heat dome, the atmospheric river, polar vortex last year. What do you think the city is spending right now just to repair the damage? You're thinking like a dinosaur. We have to get off fossil fuels. Let's make the oil companies help us by giving us back the money we've already spent and will need to spend to repair damage. Okay, it was a close vote at council yesterday. It passed six to five. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart casting the deciding vote. Let's discuss it now with my guest. We got both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney, climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Also on the line is Chris Sims, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hello, Chris. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you to both of you. Peter, let me go to you first. You must be happy with this, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see uh, the city of Vancouver be the first, hopefully, of many cities who are trying to recoup their costs from some of the most profitable companies on the planet, um, because we are already spending an immense amount of taxpayer money on uh, on climate disasters. And so if we want to protect the taxpayers from these escalating costs moving forward, we, we have to go to the companies who got obscenely rich uh, by selling a product that they knew would cause these harms. Chris Sims, what do you say? I just think it's a big waste of taxpayers' money and can't see how it would have immediate benefit for people. Uh, We just finished watching a videotape of folks downtown who were knocked down, that mother and child. Why not spend that money on hiring seven more police officers to walk the beat in the downtown city core? Uh, We agree with Mr. Thielman. Why not focus on repairing the roads and making sure that the city is cleaner and safer? Those are the responsibilities of a local municipal government, not dealing with these more extraneous issues okay but you know the people who support this lawsuit though chris say that climate change is costing the city a fortune right now and that's burning taxpayers even more than the potential cost of this lawsuit like adrian carr on yesterday's show she said the city is spending 50 million bucks a year to fix roads in the city a lot of it damaged from climate change so what do you accept the argument that you know climate change is costing the public a, a ton of money here 
if it even if it is, it isn't the role of the city government in order to try to recoup those losses. And as he pointed out, a very risky court challenge. If you want to deal with the actual big end of the arithmetic, find other alternative sources of energy that are affordable and in constant supply. Don't start going after <laughs> big court cases where you're wasting $700,000 on something that you likely aren't going to win. And even if you do, you're going to be tied up in years and years in the courts. This is not the quickest way in order to, number one, solve the problems for the people of Vancouver who are barely able to afford to even drive to work right now. A lot of people are afraid to walk the streets, and there's litter everywhere downtown. And it's not the way to actually solve the emissions problem. Peter, what do you say to that? Well, 28 Canadian law professors have reviewed the arguments and agree that there is a case. I am sure that when we um, started to sue tobacco companies to recoup the healthcare costs, that their products had inflicted on provinces across this country, that people thought it was a waste of time. But you know what? We won, and we're currently negotiating a settlement with these tobacco companies. Um, it has never, never been legal to sell a product that you know will cause harm. And they misled the public for decades on the science and lobbied against actions that could have kept us safe from these escalating costs that are already inflicting. It cost a million and a half dollars to repair the seawall from one storm last yeah. year. Chris? This is, this is where I think a lot of times, I think we've put our finger on the divide here. Uh, comparing something like oil and gas to tobacco is bizarre to most people. Even the phone that he is using to talk into right now is literally made of petroleum products. It was manufactured using oil and gas, shipped here using oil and gas. It has been an essential element of our way of life and our economy now for decades. And comparing that to tobacco is mind-boggling. If you want to move away from it, fine. But painting it as some sort of demonic force in our midst that needs to be magically sued and taxed somehow to pay for everything, I think departs from reality. And $700,000 could go a long way to actually helping people on the downtown east side, for example. Hire more outreach people. Hire more police. Hire more paramedics. Clean up the streets. You can actually deal with municipal problems with that amount of money in a more effective manner and look for other alternative ways of reducing emissions and the effect of climate change. You don't need to go this direction. Peter, what do you say to that? We could have started moving off of oil and gas 40 years ago when we knew this was first a problem. But the companies who profited massively off of selling a product that they knew would cause these climate disasters lobbied every government that ever tried to take climate action. And so, yes, now we are paying massive costs. It's going to cost $20 million to rebuild the Jericho Pier. Meanwhile, you know, $673,000 is 0.0003% of the Vancouver budget. I think yeah, this we is can afford to thing, go though. after this is a whole and, cup and of receive... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm going to insist yeah. you don't talk over each other. Go right. ahead, Peter, finish, finish your point there. I, I think we can afford to go after the companies that have caused this problem and recoup some of the costs that we are going to have to spend for decades to come because of their actions. Okay, Chris, go ahead. This is why we need a tool at the municipal level. If the vast majority of people, the voters, the residents in Vancouver, truly want this, fine. 
But I think that this is why we need something like the Municipal Auditor General in order to take a look at spending and do a real examination of books. And we need the ability to have City Hall recall. Okay, that's, so that uh, if people go off their mandates, you have the ability to at least call a by-election. And hey, if they pass a by-election with flying colors and they get re-elected passing these sorts of things, all the power to them, because then okay. at least they're representing the majority of people. Okay, that said, Chris, this is not an unprecedented idea, though. We have seen other cities and, and jurisdictions say that they're going to sue these big oil companies for the same reasons that Vancouver is outlining, like New York City has vowed to do the same thing. Oakland, California, Honolulu, Hawaii, several states south of the border, Minnesota, Delaware, uh, Rhode Island among them. So is, is this something that it appears to be, like you're saying, you're arguing that it doesn't sound like it has a chance in hell to succeed. Why are all these other cities getting on board with it, though? No, I'm saying that it probably isn't a good use of taxpayers' money at the municipal level, especially when some of those cities, for example, you mentioned New York, are experiencing a crime wave again. There are certain jurisdictions and certain lanes that governments should stay in, and to that effect, I agree with Mr. Thielman. You know, stay in your lane and try to clean up your own backyard and provide the basic city services, as okay. we often see in places like Port Coquitlam, and start, quit taking on, um, you know, these big global issues. Okay. So who Peter? should be paying these costs? Pardon me? Who should be paying the billion dollars that the city of Vancouver is going to have to spend dealing with sea level rise alone? Is it the taxpayers of Vancouver? Because we are currently paying those costs. And if, if that's who you think should shoulder the consequences of the carbon pollution that these oil companies have pumped into the atmosphere for decades, I am surprised to hear that that is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's position. We don't think that you're going to be able to reduce global emissions from the city of Vancouver's desk. That's what we're saying. All right. We're talking about the city of Vancouver and the proposed lawsuit against Big Oil. City Council voting yesterday 6-5 to five to get on board with this lawsuit, uh, dedicating more than $600,000 uh, to this court case. My guests are Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, Chris Sims, Canadian taxpayers, lots of calls. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Thank you so much. You know, your guest, Peter, there, uh, the cognitive dissonance is stunning, to say the least. He was on the radio a while ago with you telling us how great Nigeria is, where their human rights abuses are out, out of this world. Peter, if you want to sue Big Oil, go for it. Do a GoFundMe page. You can raise all, because supposedly all these people support you. Raise all the money you want. Sue them. And then if it goes south, I, w- I would like to, you to state right now, will you be on the hook for any damages if, if they come back at uh, the group that's suing? Okay, let me, legal, uh, let's let him answer. Go ahead, Peter. Um, to be honest, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that question. I, I would happily sue Big Oil, but I am just one citizen, and I am not incurring these costs on a personal level. I am incurring them on a societal level, which means I need my government to go and, and act on my behalf to go and recoup some of the costs because we're going to have to spend $800 million on a storm surge barrier under the Burrard Bridge. And that could buy a lot of affordable housing. That could buy a lot of uh, pothole fixing and all of the other things that this city needs. But instead, we are going to have to spend that um, paying for the consequences of the carbon pollution that these companies got rich off of. Chris, what do you say to that? Again, I think it should be put to a vote. If the, if the taxpayers of Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, really think this is a big priority for them, that they want to spend their money suing big oil and jumping on this bandwagon, then they should put it to a vote. 
Run on it. it the next put, municipal election, run on it. It was put to a vote yesterday at city council. Yeah, but they didn't put it to a wider vote of the people. They yeah, should but, ask you know, the average gonna, person. But you're going to have a referendum on a, on a $600,000 budget item? The referendum probably costs more than the lawsuit. No, include it, include it with the next municipal election, and that way it's cost-effective. We need more direct, direct democracy in this country, sure. not less. Again, this is one of the reasons why we want a municipal auditor general, and we want the ability for city hall recall. Because, again, if the vast majority of people think this is awesome, fine, fine. R- Rick, and, Rick and Langley on the open line. Hi, Rick, go ahead. Oh, hi, Mike. Um, I was just uh, kind of thinking about this, and I was thinking um, uh, the uh, pollution from emissions, um, whose fault would that be? Um, I think, first of all, maybe the people who actually burn the fossil fuels and cause the emissions. Uh, Secondly, who could stop it uh, before it's an issue like it is now, the government? So should we be suing individuals? Should we be suing governments? And I think probably the the, um, possibly partly to blame, but the lesser amount to blame is people who produce it, such as the oil companies. So I think it's a little bit of a non-issue anyhow. Okay, well, let me me ask. I think that's an interesting point. Let me go to Peter McCartney on that. Like, is this down to the oil companies or the people who are burning the oil, including the city of Vancouver that has a operates a fleet of gas powered vehicles? I mean, there's certainly plenty of blame to go around on climate change. Um, but the thing is that the policy decisions that have been influenced by these oil companies, by the automakers who have encouraged us to live in sprawling communities, that um, it is our choices are influenced by a whole set of policy decisions that governments have made, and big oil has lobbied at every opportunity to make sure that we are using as much of their products as possible. And so, yes, the ultimate responsibility falls on the people who knew this was a problem for decades, and instead of taking action, they lobbied against it. Let's go to squeeze in another call. Jeff on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Jeff. Go ahead. Hey, how much uh, carbon pollution does the city of Vancouver emit from their paving crew. Uh, they've got their own asphalt plant. They produce their own asphalt. They pave their own roads. Are they getting charged a tax on their paving that they're creating all this carbon pollution? And, uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, sort of tu- th- Thank you. It sort of touches on a similar issue there, Chris, That and this has been pointed out before. Is the city kind of hypocritical in the fact that, you know, they burn fossil fuels themselves or run the city? Your thoughts? Well, if you look around wherever you are right now, if you're in your car, if you're on the bus, if you're sitting in your home office, like oil and gas has been essential to our lives now for decades. It's just, it's not like something we can stop tomorrow. But our point is, is that if you start spending municipal taxpayers' money on these lawsuits, instead of spending it on core city services in the downtown, which are apparently desperately needed, according to people who are calling us, we just think it's the wrong way to go. If you want to switch to alternative energy sources that are dependable and affordable, give her. But our concern here, though, too, is that you would need nine new Site C dams to produce the amount of energy needed just for transportation and heat in B.C. Peter Peter McCartney. Peter, you got 20 seconds here to sum up out of time. Listen, um, these oil companies knew that their product was causing climate change. And I think as much as we have talked about the costs of this, the real costs are in the lives that are being lost all over the planet right now because of the carbon pollution that these companies okay. continued to put into the atmosphere. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about this wild story out of North Vancouver this week where police are now warning the public about a man who allegedly impersonated a police officer, conducted a traffic stop on a North Van driver, and then demanded money. You got Corporal Melissa Youngama on the line, spokesperson, North Vancouver RCMP. Corporal, thank you for coming on. No problem. Can you tell me what happened here? This is wild. Yeah, so we had a driver call in at about uh, 3.40 in the morning saying that he just recently got pulled over by what he thought was a police officer. Um, The vehicle was described as a dark gray or dark blue Tahoe, and it had a red or blue flashing light on the dash. Um, So obviously he's going to pull over. Um, But he quickly realized that something was different about this. person didn't appear to be dressed like a real police officer and um, it, the man identified himself as NVPD um, which doesn't actually exist you have RCMP here in North Vancouver yeah. um, and uh, he also brought out a debit or credit terminal to say hey you committed this offense of using your GPS on your cell phone and, and you need to pay uh, <laughs> on the side of the road and the driver just kind of thought this was a little suspicious, and so yeah. he left. Naturally, he left and called the police, um, but we weren't able to locate that Tahoe at that time. Okay, you guys have released a, a photo of what the, the vehicle looks like and also a, a description of a suspect here, right? Yes, we have. Um, do, do, would you like me to tell you the description? Well, <laughs> well sure. You can do, do that briefly for me, and then have you got any leads on, on, this, on the case here? Uh, We have a lot of tips coming in from the public, which is great. And I just really encourage everyone to please keep calling. And you'll never know if your tip is is useful or not. So don't feel bad if it's not significant. Just call us and let us know. Um, We're looking for Caucasian male, about 5'9", average build, with a slight goatee, no accent. He's about 25 to 30 years old. And at the time, he was wearing a round neck T-shirt with navy cargo pants with a vest and hat that both said police in white letters on them. The items didn't appear to be real police kit. It looked ordered off the Internet. Um, and and so we're not uh, thinking that this man has stolen any kind of police equipment or anything. Um, and he wasn't wearing a, a full duty belt like you would see on a police officer. He didn't have a radio uh, to be able to communicate with police dispatch. And so he just kind of looked like a, a normal guy wearing a police hat with a, a vest that said police on it. Unbelievable. Thank you for coming on to talk about it. And we'll continue to follow the case. I hope you catch this guy. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Take care. Uh, all right. Corporal Melissa Youngama there from the North Van RCMP. Let's check in now with Grant Gottgetrow. He is a former police officer. He is now a forensic consultant for traffic offenses. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Grant, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, Grant, what do you think of this story? What kind of cojones do you got to have to try and pull a stunt like this, impersonate a police officer like that? What do you think of that? Well, guaranteed when they find this toad, uh, he's going to be living in his mummy's basement, guaranteed. Um, in fact, I was talking about this last night with a couple of my retired buddies, um, and uh, we were like, we all said the same thing. Well, it's too bad he didn't pull us over because it would have ended differently. 
Oh, what very, would you what would you have done if if a, if a fake police officer pulled you over and said, "Hey, I'm pulling you over for distracted driving. You got to give me some money here." What what would oh, you yeah. have done? Well, well, I would have got out and arrested him multiple times. <laughs> okay. Because anyway. because you know they say if you do that to a cop, then the cop is going to know. Okay, well, and especially a retired member because we're not. You know, we're not governed under the OPCC, so, you know, we're not to be, uh, you know, so we can, we can do things differently. Um, the motorist in this particular case did everything right, okay? Yeah. They were signaled to pull over, and they pulled over. And then right. when they recognized that something was wrong, they left, and, and they called 911. So they did the right thing, because when you're signaled to pull over, you have to pull over. That's how it works. Now, most of these, most of these guys that uh, impersonate, and it's very rare, but when they do... Yeah. They, they generally have very limited equipment on their vehicles. Now, anyone who's seen an unmarked police vehicle roadside with someone pulled over, and we've all seen it on the side of the road, an unmarked, they're lit up like Christmas trees. They've sure. got lights in the back windows. They've got lights on both sides of your mirrors. They've got lights, and they're all strobes. So a, if this was like a single red fireball like Kojak used to use on the dashboard, that's a red flag. Right. And now, any- the... The North Vancouver RCMP and their release grant say that this vehicle, the driver did see a, a flashing red and blue light yeah. displayed yeah. in the vehicle. The other thing to look for, what's called wigwags. That's where the high beams alternate off and on. Oh, yeah. And we've seen those. The ambulances have those. Uh, most emergency vehicles still have those. They have the flashing white lights at the, at the front, which are called wigwags. Um, and any, any person that's pulled over by the police, if they're not sure if they're dealing with an actual police officer, a real police officer will gladly identify themselves properly by, name of, by way of name and badge number and, and, and all of that information. A person who's being unscrupulous will shake and shiver like the cowards they are, and they'll run away with the tail between their legs. Right, so you would say that it's still a kind of a tough spot for a driver, though. I mean, if if you see a vehicle behind you flashing lights at you, and you think like, "Wait a second, I don't think this is a police officer," you're saying you should pull over. Well, even you're, if, you're even bound if you, by even the law. You, you, well, yeah, you're bound ahead. by the law to pull over immediately. Now, okay. if you if the, the problem is this, it becomes a little bit of a, a dicey area because if you decide to keep driving. Now, if it's a real police officer, they're wondering, why is this person not pulling over right away for me? Right. Is there a problem here? So right away now, there's going to be a, a heightened sense of concern on the part of the police officer. So, but these are so infrequent, these incidents, right? I mean, uh, and unfortunately, we can look back at that, you know, Nova Scotia uh, disaster where that was a guy yeah. who had a fully marked police car. I mean, you really can't protect yourself against an ambush and that's just how it is. But if you're in an area that's, but the problem is this, right? Like when I worked in West Van, we do uh, checks of cars up on Cypress mountain at two in the morning. Well, there's no one else around. Right. So where's, so the person is going to go, well, uh, I hope this is a police officer because you can't necessarily drive to an area that's well populated. If you're trying to get pulled over. So it becomes a balance, and unfortunately, um, I was concerned that you're a real police officer won't cut it um, for potential charges for fail to stop for police. 
So it's one of these things. People just not people have to be vigilant, but not hyper vigilant. This is a one off. These rarely occur. I mean, I did almost thirty years on the job. These were very, very, very infrequent incidents that right. occurred in the Lower Mainland. But if yeah. you're in doubt, challenge. Just say, right. hey, what's your name? What's your? A lot of the officers wear. Um, uh, body-worn mics now, too, so everything's being recorded, and you can tell pretty fast if you're dealing with a real police officer or not. This person, the the, the person that did the, the, the pulled over the vehicle, the guy that got pulled over, sorry, did everything right. Yeah, and the and the person who was impersonating a police officer here, whoever this whoever this person was, is not exactly this is not exactly the perfect heist kind of Ocean's Eleven type of thing, like. You know, he's got like a pretty crude looking pol- police no, he, he, uniform. Yeah, he probably watched Ocean's Eight. Yeah, right. And <laughs> so that's the problem. <laughs> so, uh, and a lot of the times, these these guys that impersonate the police have yeah. uh, a fixation with law enforcement. Yeah. Um, there, there's usually a, a mental health issue as well, yeah. um, because it's it's high risk for them because if they get caught. I mean, there's just the charges are going to be overwhelming. So, well, what, what is the charge, by the way, for impersonating a police officer in Canada? Well, it is a criminal offense. It's in the code. Yeah. I don't. I don't have. I don't have I've the. Got I've got it. I got it here. I got it here in front of me, Grant. I, Section one thirty of the Criminal Code of Canada. It yeah. is uh, the offense is impersonating a peace officer, yeah. and it says if prosecuted by indictment. The maximum penalty is five years in jail. If prosecuted by summary conviction, the maximum penalty is two years in jail and or a $5,000 fine. That's according to criminalnotebook.ca. What is the difference there between indictment and uh, summary? Well, the difference is the, the jail time. If it's more than two years, it's, it's, it's indictable. If it's less than two years, it's, it's summary. And no one ever gets the full... Uh, weight of the the penalty anyways because uh, there's always circumstances they would go in, in a case like this they'd probably go summary because it, it, it there was no um physical assault there wasn't anything aggressive yeah. um and it, it, it depends on the person's background too if they've got a, a history of doing this which would be unusual because they would <laughs> we're only hearing about it on the news now um but guaranteed there'll be some sort of a mental health issue with yeah. people like this, and you can you can see these on YouTube. They got them down in the states where they have people impersonating police, and and you can tell when the police finally deal with them that there's there's something wrong. Yeah, and when this guy, this character approaches the driver, he's wearing he's got a hat and a vest that says "police" on it, and yeah. then he he tells the driver, "I pulled you over for using GPS on your cell phone." And then, and then pulls out a, a debit machine and asks the ask for immediate roadside payment. I mean, pol- police don't do that, right? No. <laughs> although I did occasionally have someone offer to pay the fine roadside to me, uh, <laughs> so that's not part unusual. And of course, I would always laugh and say, "No, thank you. Here, sign here, and I'll see you in court." Um, yeah. But uh, never, yeah, we don't carry anything like that. And that, and and the motorist was smart to um you know obviously this motorist would not be scanned by those nigerian emails either he's very smart he recognized there's something wrong here all right welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the fake police officer who pulled over a driver in north vancouver on monday and tried to collect a fine from the driver for the offense of 
using GPS on his cell phone. My guest is Grant Gottgetru. He's Grant is a former police officer. He's now a forensic consultant on traffic offenses. I mean, that's not even an, an offense, is it? Using GPS on your cell phone? That's not an offense, right? Well, actually it is. If, you, oh. if, you, if, you're, if you're touching your... If you're touching the electronic device in any in any way other than one touch to answer or end a phone call, then yeah, it's 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 uh, use electronic device. Okay, so it's it's basically he was trying to allege a distracted driving offense here. I guess is what this guy was trying to pull off. And poorly, right. but yes, that's yeah, what he was yeah. <laughs> yeah, not exactly the perfect crime. But police no. officers these days, as I, as I touched on briefly before the break, Grant, there's lots of ways that police officers can catch people distracted driving these days correct yes yeah what, what is the most common like i've often heard from people who say they, they got a distracted driving ticket at a red light you know that this is the classic one you're at a red light you touch your phone uh-oh police officer right there watching you well it, it, it's the easiest it's the easiest thing and and um for officers to set up stationary intersections and 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 nab you when you uh, look at your phone there for whatever reason i mean after 12 years on the books if you're still getting cell phone tickets, you're dumb because, yeah. I mean, you know, just don't touch it. It's that simple. But you know, it, it, it it's like speeding tickets have been on speeding has been on their books for decades, and people still speed. So the most common way is you're going to get pinched in an intersection because it's easy. We all, I think, most people are, are programmed to do that. You stop at a red light, you're going to look at your phone for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe it's just Pavlov's dog thing. I guess. Um, to me, and I've always maintained, yeah, that's a, that's an easy stat, but it's not necessarily what I want to do. What we want to do is get the people that are actually talking on their phones while they're driving. Well, right. But the problem is most, most, um, traffic departments in the lower mainland, um, including, uh, Ursu, uh, don't don't have enough unmarked cars. So you're driving around in what we used to refer to as clown cars. They're fully marked. You can see them a mile away. Well, these th- those people just put their phones down. Yeah, sure, so, sure. So the amount of people that are caught driving using an electronic device versus stationary using an electronic device, those stats need to be calculated. I suspect they would probably be an eight to, eight to two ratio. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and four points is a lot. Well, okay, well, make it four points if you're caught actually driving using your cell phone. If you're stationary, you just get the fine, no points. I mean, because it's not a moving offense because you're stationary. I mean, you know, it's In- like, I mean. So. Interesting, interesting. Let's squeeze a call well, in and, here. And the other thing, the other yeah. thing, Michael, yeah. is um, traffic disputes with cell phones, the second they went to four points, went through the roof. They're all going to court. Right, so now you've got you've got backlog court traffic court system and everything now because of it. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The government decides, oh, we'll make it four points. Okay, well, you know, guess how many of those go to court now? But uh, most of the most of the enforcement is done stationary. Squeezing a phone call here, Dwayne on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Dwayne. You got like thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Uh, just a quick comment here. Um, we seem to be having a lot of accidents and deaths with cyclists and all this. Um, what are we going to start seeing tickets uh, laid out to cyclists going through red lights, using, breaking all these laws and being reckless abandoned? Um, Grant, Grant, 30 seconds here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Question. Yeah, and, and, and it's easily done. I was one of those. I actually gave two speeding tickets to bicyclists once, too. So, um, But, uh, again, 
the, the easiest enforcement is, is cell phones and speeding. That's what the officers tend to gravitate to, unless there's some sort of um, project tar- targeting cyclists, because the caller is absolutely right. Grant, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. Okay. Let's talk about the shortage of new and used vehicles out there. The high prices, too. Inflation at record high, impacting the price of everything, including good uh, used vehicles. That's if you can find a good used car at a good price right now. They're in short supply. So maybe that is not surprising that recent surveys suggest more and more people are making do with the vehicle they have right now. Maybe you want to buy a new vehicle. Maybe you would like to buy a, a newer used vehicle to replace the vehicle you've got. But you know what? A lot of people are saying, I'm just going to keep driving this thing until it quits on me. Now, that includes our own family. We're driving right now a 2005 Honda Odyssey minivan that we bought when our kids were little. This thing, this thing just won't quit. We would like to buy a new vehicle. And my wife and I, we decided, okay, let's just keep driving this thing until, until it dies. This thing is a tank. It just won't, it just won't quit. Just keeps on going. A lot of people are doing that. They're driving older cars instead of trading up into a newer vehicle. I got Brett Delaney standing by from OK Tire and Langley. First, have a listen to this report here now from KGUN News. People love the cars from the good old days. They're great to look at, but younger old cars, maybe 10 or 15 years old, are the ones taking care of the business of life day after day. Now a new survey says more drivers are keeping more old cars on the road. The average age is 11.8 years. Here in the West, we keep cars the longest, 12.4 years. Jennifer Cronister says she spent about $500 to get this old Pontiac for a work car. She knows relatively modern cars hold up well enough to stay on the road a good long time. My personal car is a newer car, but um, I bought it used still as well. But um, yeah, I think they last a lot longer. Okay, let's discuss now. More and more people keeping, just driving those older cars. Let's check in with Brett Delaney now. Brett is the owner and manager of OK Tire in Langley, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Brett, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Brett, do you find that that is the case there, that more and more people are sort of making do and driving their older vehicle longer? We've we've definitely seen an increase on higher mileage vehicles coming in, that's for sure. Um, People are definitely kind of doing what a lot of people were doing in the housing market last year, where they realized with the uh, pricing and the bidding wars going on, people were kind of putting the maintenance into their houses. And uh, we're noticing that now in the car world as People are looking anywhere from a year or year and a half to get a vehicle. And when they do show up, the price point and the rates on them are just pretty sky high currently. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think people are looking at their own bank balances and their own bottom line and saying, you know what? I would love to get a new vehicle, but I think I've just got to make do with what I've got here. Especially if you take your used vehicle, let's say you take it into a dealership for, uh, let's say, a trade-in on a new vehicle you're, you know, you're not going to get top dollar for that trade-in. You know what I mean? Correct. And that's what a lot of people are too, where they have, say, a $1,500 brake job that they have on their vehicle while they may have ordered a vehicle, but they're not seeing one for maybe another eight months, but the vehicle they're currently driving has no brakes. So people are running into kind of that scenario. And I have seen on a few occasions where people are like, you know what, I'm going to put money into this vehicle 
kind of what you touched on a second ago, just we're going to yeah. drive this car until she blows and yeah. hopefully the inventory gets a little bit better down the road. Yeah, and now it's an interesting calculation when people are in this situation. Should I get a new vehicle or keep driving what I have? Because let's say you've got a used vehicle, Brett, and it needs a a, a significant repair. So let's say, I don't know, maybe it needs like two or 3000 bucks worth of work, you know, new transmission or whatever. And maybe the car itself is not worth that much more than what you you have to spend on it to fix it. Like at that point, at that point, does it become, you know, you start doing the math, you start thinking, well, wait a sec, does it make sense for me to pour money into a, into a repair on an older vehicle, especially when you're probably going to need more repairs down the road? 100%. And normally the rule of thumb over the last while that we've always done is when you do have an older car um, and the repair work is the same or maybe a little more than the value, that is kind of the time where we started telling people, listen, maybe start looking for a new vehicle. But again, in the last year, that's where we've started to see some people putting in a couple of grand into that eight, nine, 10, 11 year old vehicle, just because either a, the financial scenario is not in their budget as of right now, or B, they can't get a vehicle for about a year or so. So they're kind of in that middle standpoint. Yeah, that's a sort of tough spot to be in. But now let's say you've got a used vehicle like our family does, and it's an, it's an old one, but it just keeps on rocking, just keeps going. Now, basic maintenance on that vehicle to keep it going longer than you, than maybe you thought it would. Like you're a tire, you're a tire guy. I mean, you've got to, you know, you got to make sure you got good tires on there, right? I always say the three main things is uh, make sure you have good tires, make sure your brakes are in great shape and do your regular oil change and the occasional flush. That way you're keeping the engine lubricated, the traction with the tires. And of course, every vehicle needs to stop with the brakes on there. Yeah, there you go. I think you hit the big three right there. You know, tires, brakes, and just your regular maintenance. Change the oil, right? And then kind of face the demon when it shows. <laughs> yeah, right, right. For an oil change, how often do people change the oil on their vehicle a year? Two or three times a year? Depending on the driving. Uh, we normally go off of mileage intervals. So if you're doing regular oil on a vehicle, we always say 5,000K. If you're doing synthetic on certain vehicles, it's usually that eight to 10,000K. Yeah, and... Like if you're driving a truck, like I've talked to guys who are are driving an older truck, sometimes they might get a little suspension work done on a truck. Definitely. Yeah. I know the uh the, the Chryslers with the Dodge Rams and stuff, their front ends are usually the Achilles to their vehicle. So um after that, usually that one hundred to hundred and twenty thousand K they might start to develop a little vibration in the front and that's kinda of where it becomes the tie rod, ball joints and et cetera, but I think a lot of that point now comes down to the current person's budget and what they're willing to either spend on the repairs, how long they're wanting to keep the car, and what the new cost is going to be on getting something either new or slightly used. Yeah. Speaking to Brett Delaney from OK Tire in Langley about continuing to drive your older vehicle and keep it on the road. Here's another thing that I think goes through the minds of people. They're making this decision, should I get a new vehicle Man, oh man, it's the cost of the new vehicle, of course. I mean, even a good used vehicle, the costs have gone up a lot. And then in some cases, you're looking, I I suspect you're looking at a higher ICBC bite out of your wallet too. I mean, the insurance is going to be more expensive too in a new vehicle, correct? Definitely. And I know even the finance rates have gone up quite substantial as well too. So, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So all of these factors go go into uh, the decision on this. Would you say that overall 
that sort of later model model vehicles. Let's say a vehicle that's around I don't know, ten years old. The way they're manufactured, like the quality these days, do you find that used vehicles are holding up better, sort of longer than past years? I think if you're doing your proper maintenance, I think anything in that 10 or 11 years old is just, I guess, the history of the vehicle. Um, That's kind of another thing, too. If you do have an older vehicle and you do put some work and maintenance into it and then you get to that point of, you know what, we got to get rid of it. Let's get something new. The kind of scary part is now is at least with the older vehicle you have that you've done work on, you kind of know what's left and what has been done. Where if you get, say, a new older vehicle, you don't really know what is around the corner again. So kind of comes down to, you know, what the past maintenance and the maintenance is on it and kind of go from there. And again, what your budget is and what you're willing to spend. But uh, yeah, if you've kept them up, they brakes, oil change, certain flushes and just stay on top of your maintenance. They should run for a while. So. And what are your customers telling you, like, especially when it comes to the the used vehicle market out there or, or even the brand new vehicle market? Like, we continue to hear stories about shortages. It, you know, the supply is down. Are you hearing from your customers that, you know, I'd like to get a new vehicle, but they're just kind of tough to find and they're expensive. So I'm going to just keep driving this one. Lots. And that's that's yeah. a big change that we've heard in the last little while. Like, even my brother going to a personal note who I own the shop with. He ordered a vehicle, uh, I believe it was a week before Halloween, and finally they gave him a call a couple weeks ago saying that it was just about ready, and with the rates going up and everything, we kind of kind of backed out on and said, you know what, we have another vehicle here that kind of works, but that's what a lot of people are running into is just they don't have time to either wait for a vehicle because they either commute or they have families with sports equipment, et cetera, and just they're they're realizing now you know what we might put that thousand dollars into the vehicle right now and see if it lasts us another year or another year and a half because the biggest thing for a lot of people right now is just the unknown we don't know kind of when this is going to slow down when it's going to come back to normality when the inventory is going to start showing up again and i think that's a big uh, indicator for a lot of people as well the other thing that i hear from people is they say okay i'd like to get a new vehicle but you know in this climate right now i'm going to keep driving what i have there are ways you can sort of freshen up that vehicle and keep it going and maybe make it a more, a little bit more enjoyable to drive. Like I think new tires are are always a good way to go. I don't know, maybe even get the thing detailed or put down some new floor mats. I mean, something, you know, something to freshen it up. A bit of a facelift. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. Brett, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Thank you.